0: This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men In Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men In Blazers pod special. A pod special that centres around Atlanta. That city, once known for the Maddox-Smots-Glavin-era Braves, Jimmy Carter oh, and Chick-fil-A, now known for Migos, Donald Glover's majestic television show, and Atlanta United's stunning play on the football field. A remarkable story of transformation from a footballing perspective, as the Big Peach was long deemed to be a city where soccer would never grow. Fast forward into Atlanta United's second season, the delirious crowds average over 53,000, cheered on one of the most buccaneering attacking teams MLS has ever seen. Last year, we taped a pod with Darren Eales, the club's first employee, a former American college player turned English pro, turned Tottenham Hotspur front office executive, who became the first president of MLS darlings, Atlanta United. In that podcast, which I encourage you to hunt down now because it was rather remarkable, Darren broke down step by step how he went about unlocking the latent yet potent fanaticism for football that lay ready to be unleashed in his city. At a time when Atlanta are undoubtedly kings of the South, they currently are living out the Game of Thrones wisdom of King Robert Baratheon when he declared, I swear to you, Sitting on a throne is a thousand times harder than winning one. Don't go boar hunting, Darren Eels. So in that regard, to talk about sustaining success rather than just creating it, I've invited Darren, and he's accepted, he's a brave man, to return to the panic room and drop five lessons about life you learn from a second season of team football. We welcome back to the pod, President Eels, Mr Darren Eels. Hi, Rog, good to be here. Oh. Let me ask you, before we dive into your lessons about life, what's been the biggest difference between season one and season two for you personally?
1: Everyone's expectations are much higher. The first year you get a bit of a pass and a bit of a honeymoon because you're coming in and no one's really got any expectations. And after the fantastic season we had the first year, I think it was that feeling that we're not going to get that honeymoon anymore. We've got to keep kicking on. and That makes it tough.
0: The dark side of setting the bar incredibly high. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You can't come in under it again.
1: Yeah, they don't let you limbo under it afterwards.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In praise of limbo dancing, Darren's forthcoming autobiography. But you've given us your five lessons about life from this second season at Atlanta United. Lesson one, familiar to us from when we had the NWSL champions, North Carolina Courage, talk to us about their victory because it was their mantra,
1: there is no finish line. This is something that's testament to Arthur Blank. So this is really his phrase that he's used all his time at Home Depot through to now. The club zone the Atlanta right. Falcons' zone. The guy up. who started up the Home Depot. And that's always been his mantra. There is no finish line. There's a tendency that you can have this gravitational pull towards mediocrity. And you've got to always fight against that. And so that's something that we have really strove to do. Everybody said first year, Atlanta's not a sports city. You'll never get the crowd. We got 48,000, which blew people's minds and no one really expected that as an average attendance, as an average attendance yeah which put us at that stage in the top 20 in the world but i think then everyone was saying well yeah but it's a shiny new object people aren't going to come a second season and so we've worked really hard and this year we're averaging over fifty-three thousand. astonishing number for us We've got a new team like LAFC that came in and have done fantastically well. So we know that everyone's going to be chasing to get better each year, so we just can't afford to rest on our laurels. The game of soccer, sometimes results can hide sins. And by that I mean you can sometimes be winning games when perhaps you shouldn't, and then there's a tendency not to look too hard at what you're doing. What's really important, and I think the focus we try to do, is to always say... Okay, we've been successful, but what can we do better and not get too carried away with results? Because particularly in a sport like soccer, you can have a game that you win a match, you get the three points. But actually, probably if you play that game 10 times, you might not win it the other eight. It's really important that you don't get too carried away with the results and you're more looking at the underlying performance.
0: I love what you say about slumping towards mediocrity, because as an Englishman, I aspire towards mediocrity. But what that means, essentially, is that you are doomed in your position to always be a footballing Sisyphus. You're constantly completing the task, like painting an enormous bridge. And the second you finish it, you have to start again.
1: And there was a sense of that at the end of our first season because there'd been all the build-up two and a half years before we even kicked a the ball. Then we had the season where we went through two different venues. We built a training ground. But the minute we got knocked out from Columbus, it was straight on the focus for next year and how are we going to improve the fan experience, how are we going to get the players in to improve the squad, how are we going to get that little bit better. And so there is that sort of relentless continual thinking and making sure that you just don't say okay enough's enough
0: is that the nature of football clubs everywhere
1: Darren I mean you've spent years at Tottenham
0: Hotspur or is it particularly enhanced at a young fledgling club an entrepreneurial startup like Atlanta
1: I think it's enhanced. Some of it's sort of a personality trait because we are a new club and we're in the league that's on the growth as well. So we don't have the history. We've not been around over 100 years. There's not that feeling of same old, same old. We have expansion teams coming in. So there's always new opposition. So I think that adds a level of focus because you've got these new teams coming in. It's very collegiate in the MLS. We're all together trying to grow the sport, trying to grow the league so that it gets bigger and better. So there's a lot more sharing of best practices. So you always have to be thinking one step ahead because everybody's learning from each other and we want that to happen because we want the league to get better. But obviously there's still that element of you want to on the pitch be beating the other team. So you've got to find that next angle. That unique differential, that Mm -hmm. special source. I mean,
0: here's what I want to ask you about, the special source, the jewels in your squad. You went in a different way in year one than most clubs who are trying to establish themselves. MLS single season record-breaking goal scorer, Joseph Martinez. There was no one in MLS who said, wow, when you sign them, that guy is going to fill stadia. Miguel Almiron, now linked to Arsenal. The same with him. They have both excelled as players on the field. But your success, you now have Almiron linked to Arsenal, linked to West Ham. By the way, I love the English rumour mills that quote your alter ego, Darren Eagles. It made
1: me feel we've come somewhere now when people are making up quotes
0: about us (laughs) as well. which is uh, (laughs) Making up quotes, making up names. Both players are constantly linked with Europe. Does that create an insecurity? Do you ever watch and feel like, Joseph Martinez... Maybe just score one or two today, three or four,
1: not necessary. No, not at all. And I think we've been up front right from the very start. The way that we went in terms of recruiting the players was to try and take those young talents either in their prime or perhaps not even in their prime. Someone like a Tito Vialba who was 21 at the time that we were talking to him and encouraging him to come to Major League Soccer. Part of the value proposition to those players was come here, develop your game, and if you do really well for the club and you're successful, you'll have a chance to move to a top club in Europe. And of course, that then is good for the league and good for our club because when we're looking for that replacement player, we're able to say, look, we've got a track record. We've got a proof of concept that you can come here, develop. Now, one day down the line, we hope the MLS is such a big league that no one ever leaves, but we can't realistically assume that at the moment. So for us, we want them to do as well as possible. But the great thing we have is we've got a billionaire owner who loves the club and wants to win, and we don't have to sell. So it's the best position to be in, unless it's the right offer at the right price at the right time, then they're under long-term contracts with us. So go ahead and bang in all the goals. I'm happy for that. It just means that it's going to be better for everyone.
0: You've said on the last podcast that every club, with the exception of Barcelona and maybe Real Madrid, are selling clubs. You've said Atlanta are a selling club, which sounds rational, but it is breathtakingly innovative for an MLS president to say because it's not been the way the league has tried to present itself. So for you, does every player have a price, even, say, Joseph Martinez?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the crazy thing is, the last time we chatted, we said, look, perhaps except for Barcelona and Real Madrid, but Real Madrid sold Ronaldo and Neymar left Barcelona, so actually... The reality is every club's a selling club. It's just the right price. And the important thing for me is having our staff ready for the next player to come in. That's vitally important. Part of the conversation we've had with our fans all along is, look, you can expect this to happen, but when it does do, we're going to bring in the next exciting young talent. And that, I think, is important. If we just moved a player on and brought nobody in, then that's a different question. But we're given that commitment that we're trying to make our team better so when a player leaves we're going to do our best to replace them with an equally good player so
0: how do you go about the task of replacement Darren I mean if you sell a 25 million dollar player like Almiron remarkable player a remarkable player do you have to buy a 25 million dollar player to replace him would you go out and gamble and buy another rough diamond and hope that they like he did can fulfill their potential
1: well, that's the sort of dilemma we have that's different, I'd say, from Major League Soccer to my previous time in the Premier League. So when I was at Tottenham, in one respect, there was less pressure. Obviously, it's a bigger league, the media scrutiny is higher, but you don't have just three designated player slots like we have. You have that ability to sign some players and it's not the end of the world. As long as you're getting more right than wrong, you usually be in a good place. The issue we have with Atlanta United is we only have three spots. So when we have to replace a player, we're under a little bit more pressure because we only have one spot to replace you have no margin for error essentially it's fair to say that we hit a home run in terms of the three that we signed as our first three designated players so that again cranks up the pressure because i've been in this game long enough now you'll never get them all right there'll always be some reasons why people don't settle or some reason why a player ultimately doesn't fit in the system so i think we've got to be realistic that we're not going to always bat a thousand percent but we'll try our damn best to do that
0: clubs that are selling clubs it's very hard to sustain success very hard. I once made a film with Southampton when they were at their peak. They sold everyone. But they still did unbelievably well because they kept bringing in youth. And I remember asking all of the, the the club president, the club director of football, the manager, and I said, who's your model? Who is your model for long-term success? And they couldn't give me one. you know. And I said to them, like Leon before, who became an overfished kind of trout farm mm. that got fished out. Ultimately, Southampton did get stripped bare of talent and couldn't replace, even though they felt at one point the academy was so wonderful, they could keep taking a Luke Shaw and they'd replace him. What is your long-term model of success? Who do you look at and say, that is who we at Atlanta are going to follow and
1: feel confident about it? I don't think there is anyone that we're looking to copy, but we're in a league where we're not selling to other teams in our league. So I think it's slightly different from a... Premier League club, a Southampton, who's going to sell their best player to Liverpool, and then over you're and over over again. Yeah, you're playing against Liverpool, and then it becomes a little bit more difficult. The reality is, if we do a transfer to Europe to a top club, what we've actually done is promote MLS as a venue for players to come. So, actually, it's good for not only Atlanta United, but everyone in the league. From our perspective, we want to be the top team in Major League Soccer, and we can continue to do that by moving players on to top clubs in Europe. And then someday down the line, we're hoping that the league is going to get to that stage where it is getting the big TV deals like you get in the Premier League. And so we don't need to move those players on, but obviously that's not going to happen overnight.
0: Lesson two, there's power in diversity. I mean, you've had some changes in your front office, less heralded than the player moving. I'm fascinated by how you've counted them. Uh, We talked about a VP of soccer operations, Paul McDonough, the gent under whom you identified Almiron, Martinez, and Barco. He's now the sporting director of Inter Miami CF. And instead, this is what fascinated me. Instead of bringing in another strictly soccer mind, you brought in and replaced him with the Atlanta Falcons cap guru, Chase Falavine. God, I love America. We don't have many people in England, Darren, <laughs> walking around being like, the name's Chase. It's Chase Falavine. Chase Falavine, if you're listening, you need to be part of the reboot of Night Rider that's coming. What was that like replacing a purely soccer mind with an individual who no doubt is remarkably
1: talented from a stats and finance background, but is an outsider from a soccer perspective? Yeah, it was an interesting process because Paul's going to do a fantastic job at Miami. And he was someone that as an expansion team, he'd been at Orlando. So he'd been through the whole expansion process. So as part of the front office staff, he was invaluable to us because he'd been there, seen it, done it and made some of the mistakes he'd be open about it that he could learn from. But the reality was we were never going to fit a like-for-like for for him. So he was someone that had a very good scouting background as well as knowledge of the rules. So when we looked at what we needed, we felt that rather than try and get a like-for-like, which wouldn't happen, we would look at the roles and we identified that we're in a salary cap environment. MLS is unlike any other league in the world of football. In the global football world, no
0: salary cap.
1: MLS, huge salary cap, intricate salary cap, more like an NFL back Yeah, then. so an NFL or NBA. And so for us, you know, there's capologists that have been built up in all of the sports in America. We have within our group of businesses, the Falcons as a sister club to us. And there was someone there that we spoke to. And it was absolutely eye-opening in terms of what we felt we could translate across, that would give us an edge in Major League Soccer that you didn't necessarily need that soccer knowledge for. You needed that financial, that capology sort of expertise. And then it gave us resources to go out and hire more scouts. So in effect, we split the role up. This gentleman who's had 11 years at the Atlanta Falcons thinks
0: differently, which is no doubt an asset. But you balance that against the need to understand the idiosyncratic reality of MLS, that kind of odd Bruce Arena-shaped soccer brain
1: that's often bedeviled outsiders. Mm. But that, there's no fear for you. No, I mean, we've got the expertise already in terms of the soccer knowledge. But what we needed was that methodology and to try and find an edge in terms of the financial parameters, the ways to approach how you do your modelling for a cap. So all of that statistical analysis is definitely transferable from sport to sport. I've done it the other way when I looked at the way that the Falcons approached the draft. With my background, I'd never been in a draft situation before. You were in the draft room? Yeah, so I had three years. I was very fortunate in terms of Thomas Dimitrov, the general manager of the Falcons, let me sit through their whole draft process. And this is one of the big pluses we had of being part of a bigger organization. The methodology, the feeling of how do you evaluate talent when one disappears off the board? How do you react?
0: What was the number one learning you took from being in that draft room for three years?
1: It was the amount of preparation that went into it to be able to deal with whatever gets thrown at you. It's no different from a negotiation. If I look back at some of the things I've learned from the fantastic owners that I've worked for before, Daniel Levy gets a lot of stick. Tottenham Hotspur. That's right. So the Tottenham Hotspur chairman, the preparation, the way that we would go into negotiations, thinking of every angle, that's what gives you the edge. And this is something where it comes the other way. They've got 11 years in Chase's case with his name as well. That put him right to the top of the <laughs> list of candidates. But,
0: but after that,
1: he actually had some substance behind the name. But it was really fascinating talking with him about learnings that would help us improve. If Paul hadn't have left, we would not have actively gone to look for. But it was actually what at the time felt like a blow actually becomes a positive. Fascinated by Chase Fallavi and I know that when
0: he tells you that number one draft pick next year, you should be bringing in Dion Sanders. I'm looking forward to how that will work out. I think it's going to be amazing. Him and Jeff George in the centre of the field. What could go wrong? This is as good a place to get into it. The unexpected. There's a Tata Martino-shaped elephant in the room, Darren. Atlanta announced last week that Martino had declined to exercise the option on his contract and will become and god speed to him the manager of the Mexican national team at the end of this season. First of all, when did you know that he was going to leave? How did you find out? Your first reaction? Take us inside the Darren Eels brain.
1: We've been talking for a number of months on it, going back and forth, but after the Chicago game last weekend, he informed me that, you know, he'd made his decision and he didn't know what he was going to do and that wasn't going to be firmed up till after the season, but he wanted to give us the notice, credit to him. He's been the most unbelievable head coach for us for our first two years, and he understands that we've now got to find a replacement, so he gave us the heads up to give us the maximum time. If I think back to when we were talking to Tatar in terms of getting him to sign up. We knew that he was someone that, in his past, at every club he's been at, has never done more than two years. Two years was the deal he was comfortable signing, but you know, my view was we've got a top manager, we sign him up, and then if it all goes successfully, we work on trying to extend that. Disappointed on the one hand that we weren't able to extend it, but totally understand why from his perspective. It was clearly a tough decision for him, a new challenge and a family circumstances. The MLS season, we start in January, we finish in December. He's not living in Argentina. I think those factors after two years. Does he know there's no Waffle House in Argentina? I know, it's crazy, isn't it? That was one of my my (laughs) top points. You talk about preparation, that was number one on the list of the renegotiation. Come on, Waffle House at every corner. As they say,
0: you don't know what you've got till it's gone. But how large was his contribution to Atlanta United's success? Some managers do everything. Others just kind of execute on the field. Where would you put Tata at Atlanta United on the spectrum? And you can tell us honestly now he's going.
1: Really important because if you think about it, it's a brand new club starting up. There was a couple of things that you look at. We want to obviously hit the business metrics. You want to have the fans there. You want to have the atmosphere, all of those things. But actually on the pitch... We wanted to have this exciting team that was going to play fast, fluid, attractive football. And there's no doubt that what Tata's done is incredible. We've just qualified for Champions League. And so to do that and also play a style of football that anybody could turn a television on and see the five stripes and know that they're going to see exciting attacking football, that was hugely important and can never be underestimated. What Tata has given us is that launch pad in our first two seasons to now be able to say... We are Atlanta United, and that's what we're about. We're not about one person, and it's you know partly down to Tata that we're where we are. Whatever happens, Tata is a huge part of our club, will forever be a huge part of our club, and obviously he's going to be a legend and always welcomed at the club. You talk about Tata as a legend. To speak to the players, it's clear there's
0: such a deep emotional connection between so many of those players. It's been described as the cult of Tata. He gave you instant credibility in attracting South American stars, Miguel Almiron. He told us wide-eyed about what an honour it was to get a call from Tata. He said, of course I'm going to sign. You've called me. Of course I'm going to sign. Of course I'm going to move to Atlanta. How do you replace a legend? Do you need to reload with a globally respected coach, or now that you're a known entity, with a groove, with a style
1: of play? Could you go with an American coach? We're not going to narrow ourselves down to any area of the world. One of the big differences is... When we hired Tata, we had no stadium. We had no training ground built. We had no players. Although, having said that, I'll just mention Tito Vialda, who was the first of our designated players and the first of that philosophy of going for young South American, he signed way before Tata had even left Argentina and Miggy, great guy obviously when he gives his interviews is always going to be respectful about the coach but again we've been talking to Miggy well before Tata had signed on so there's no doubt that Tata gave us that credibility but the great thing now is we can point to a club that's successful in Major League Soccer, playing in front of crowds of 72,000 with a 60 million dollar training facility that's one of the best in North America with a group of players that are already in the building so it's a much easier sell now so for us the most important thing is a coach that's going to continue the style of play that we're playing with a system that's going to suit the players we've got because the one thing that would be nuts is if we try to rip it all up and bring someone in who wants to change the squad because that isn't going to happen so we need to have someone who's going to continue to play that style of play look we're not being crazy about it we'll never find a light for like for tatter and I think it's no different from the famous Chase Falavine coming in for Paul McDonough you're never going to get exactly the same person but circumstances change and what we need is the right person at this time for Atlanta United well I
0: could be your Chase Falavine
1: someone <laughs> a complete outsider to the I'm ready I'm ready so where are you in the replacement process how do you go about it? And you can imagine the phone's been blowing up in terms of agents and we're going to be in the silly season now. It's going to be great learning for our fans because literally every agent who's got a coach is going to link him to Atlanta United to try and drive some sort of deal for his coach. David Moyes. Exactly. There we are. I mean, there'll be millions and millions of <laughs> those type of coaches that are going to get linked. you put them through to Darren Eagle's voicemail. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have an Eagle's bucket and an Eagles. What will happen is we'll sort through that initial list and then we'll go meet with them face-to-face, and then probably narrow it down to two or three that we'll then bring to Atlanta and do final interviews.
0: I'm going to throw out a name. Just blink twice if you're talking to him. Barish Scalotti.
1: At the moment, we're not talking to anyone. So we have got the news uh, earlier this week. There's no blinking. All we're doing is, yeah, all we're doing is fielding calls at the moment in terms of potentials and then start the process of meeting with people. Blink once for Arsene Wenger. Not talking to anyone at the moment. No blinking.
0: Lesson three. And this is a great one with Tata departing don't take anything for granted?
1: You always can think that you've got it figured out and then something will come and punch you on the nose. And for me, the most important thing when I talk to our staff and our biggest area of focus is the fans. Now, Rogers, you know, you came down to do the Men in Blazers show and the fans are absolutely crackers, but it's vitally important that we don't take that for granted. So if there's one thing that I'm sure my colleagues are bored to death with (laughs) hearing me say is not to take the fans for granted. So, To give you an example I mean early on this season we'd had all the success of last year we'd set up the new team we'd set up the new stadium built a new training ground we then set up Atlanta United 2 which is our feeder club which was like a mini version of Atlanta United we had to brand it originally we would planned to do an open training session at our new training ground for the fans to let them come in and see it and it was put on the table as should we postpone it because everyone was so tired and we sort of we were thinking about it. I went home that night and it was just one of those things that was bugging me at the back of my brain. And the reality was, it was because I felt it just went against everything that we'd said. And and though I understood that we were quite tired as an employee group, this was really important because it sent a message that we still were caring about the fans, we were putting the fans first. And what we actually did was we ended up launching our King Peach kit that came from one of the TIFOs they did when we played against Red Bulls where they had the King Peach bigger than the Big Apple. We actually launched our kit at that open training session and it was just the most fantastic success. We had 2,500 of our fans there but it was really important to our fans and that was a great message to us that we could never take the fans for granted because I think there is a tendency to think, okay, they're always going to come. And we always have to remember that we've got to keep winning these hearts and minds because we're in an environment where not only are we fighting against professional sports in the city, we're fighting against college football, which is huge. And of course, global football in terms of Premier League, Liga MX. So it's absolutely vital that we always keep that connection.
0: I mean, your fans, a new record in MLS for total home attendance. Nine hundred and one thousand and thirty three across 17 games, a single season average of over fifty three thousand, which is better than any American pro sports team outside of the NFL, which is a remarkable achievement. Bigger. This one's even more impressive to me. Bigger than all but five Premier League teams. It's astounding.
1: And if you add into that, Roger, as well, we played a U.S. Open Cup game in front of over 42,000, which was the highest ever in the history of the competition this year. We hosted the All-Star game and had 72,000 in the building. So actually with our playoff game, which is going to be another 70,000 sellout in November, we're going to have over a million people in the building. And I think for me, the really amazing impact is you compare it to an NFL tenant that we also have in that stadium we have way more Atlanta United fans in the building in a year than you would do from NFL. And I think that's something that no one ever dreamt of when it was first announced that soccer was coming to Atlanta. Which is way it's remarkable. But if I'm Arthur Blank,
0: I'm going to turn around to Darren Hills and say, we filled the bowl with 70,000 plus five times this season. Let's do it every game next season. Let's go for it all 17 games. Has he said that? And if so,
1: What's your response? Well, we always have had a chat about it because it's something that we've been really sort of careful and thoughtful about as we have built the fan base. And this is where having an owner like Arthur Bank is just incredible because he started Home Depot from one store in Atlanta into one of the biggest retailers in the world. Every time they were launching a new store, it's like a startup. And so he always knew that you never get that second chance to create a first impression. So he's a startup guy. He's been there. But the other thing he does understand is there's a medium to long-term view. So we could actually just go and grab every dollar available and try and sell every ticket. the American match. way, Darren. But if you do that, what you'll do is you'll kill the atmosphere. Every Atlanta United game, is packed stadium. Now it's either forty-five thousand as our soccer specific, where we have the banners down with the Atlanta United branding, or it's a seventy-two thousand stadium. What we don't want is to have sixty thousand in a seventy thousand stadium with ten thousand empty seats, and the atmosphere feels less energetic. So what we said is we will do it at the right time, but we're going to focus on the atmosphere and the energy. And Arthur gets this; he understands that. This is about building an exciting atmosphere. People come, yes, for the soccer on the pitch, but they're also coming to an Atlanta United game because there's frankly nothing like it in American sports in the other sports, and that's what we've seen this year. We went from 48,000 last year to 53,000 this year. That is due to our fans bringing their friends, their neighbour who might be a college American football fan to a match. He comes and says, wow, this is an unbelievable atmosphere. I never knew something like this existed, and then he comes back. And so it's really important for the long-term strategy and growth that we don't try to kill the golden goose and chase that dollar. And having an owner like Arthur is so important to that because he understands fan experience. Let me give you one more example that I think sort of sums it up. When we moved from Bobby Dodd to the new stadium... I miss Bobby Dodd. Yeah, I mean, Bobby Dodd was a cracking atmosphere. And we've got a lot to be (laughs) thankful for because the standing up in the stadium came from the rubbish seats at Bobby Dodd where nobody wanted to sit down. And we carried that on to Mercedes-Benz. So we create something that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. I love a splinter up my arse. (laughs) Go on. But what we didn't have was a capo stand. So that stand where the supporters group can start the cheering and chanting. We'd sold all the field level suites. So we had to actually buy out two field level suites from the customer (laughs) to build this stand. And you can imagine normally someone that doesn't understand fan experience to say, look, I'm going to take some of the profits that we might have made from these suites because it's important for fan atmosphere. But Arthur totally understood it because he understands the importance of fan experience. And we had a great learning from that experience with the All-Star game because we didn't have the capo stand for that game. And it was noticeable that whilst it was a fantastic atmosphere, it wasn't quite at the level that we have for Atlanta United games. But that was a great learning experience for everybody in the building because it gave us a beta test. It showed that you can't always assume you're going to get that passion unless you're thinking Mm. and trying to help in every little detail. And that was a good example where that short-term profit of selling those two suites is worth far more for the brand, for the club, for building your fan base and culture than just you know short-term dollars
0: you will have projections as club president is there a future in which atlanta are a seventy thousand every home game and how many seasons is it together
1: we've already announced that we're going to go for six for next season so we're going to take it step by step and we'll look at the schedule and we'll look at the demand and so my aim is that we sell out every game difficult to put a time frame on it but i would be disappointed if in five years time we're not selling out every match and i think is excited for the future of soccer in America. The
0: Five Stripes lead all teams with five players in the top 25 of all jersey sales, which is amazing. I want to go on record and say the only shock to me is how none of those five are Mr. Bradley Guzan. I know. Always number one in my heart, Darren.
1: Partly because of the goalkeeper shirts, they can't quite get enough. We sold them out quite quickly on the goose. Oh, lesson four, the path to progress. It's not a straight line. This was an interesting one for us because we'd had the success uh, of the first season and there had been a lot of articles written in terms of hype for season two. And I can remember going into our first game away at Houston with that feeling of excitement that we all have at the start of a season, the beauty of the game of football that every club thinks it's going to be their year. And we got pasted 4-0 by Houston. I mean, it was just a total shellacking. And it was a really interesting moment for us because I think we all had got a little captured in the positive press and in major league soccer if you're not 100 percent, you can't expect to win a game but what was really important to me was the way that we bounced back from that and we then went on a great unbeaten run off the back of that and actually every time this season that we've lost a game we've never lost consecutive matches and that sort of bounce back ability has been really important to us you need those moments of clarity where you have something that doesn't go your way I think that's where you learn the most and you get that level of progress. So I think that's, for me, the biggest learning in this season, too, has been when we've had those downfalls, when we've had those moments where things haven't quite gone right, it's how we learn from them and help them to make us better.
0: You're saying continual improvement needs learning, and often the best learning comes from a moment of mistake and how you respond to it. At the same time, I look at this season for Atlanta and I see unprecedented achievement. I mean, Over the past two years, no MLS team has earned more points, scored more goals, posted a higher goal differential than your five stripes. I mean, it is an odd question. Does part of you wish you had not set the bar so high that the only way is down? You could have settled for 100 points, 100 goals, a nice goal differential. It doesn't have to be so
1: dominant. I do think the disappointment of losing the playoff last year is something that did give us something to aim for this season because we did have a great regular season. We had had a logjam at the end of the season in terms of scheduling because of our stadium delay and we came up against Columbus crew with a goalkeeper, Zach Steffen, who just had the game of his life and we lost on penalties. And that was really disappointing, but I'm hopeful that that loss and that pain from losing has helped us this season, particularly in terms of how we periodise and focus on the playoffs being a whole new season.
0: How does it feel from the inside in terms of what you've built internally? Does it feel like an upstart a startup on the Atlanta sporting scene? or does it feel more like the best-in-class kind of blue-chip stock gold standard that it's viewed as from an MLS perspective? Which are you from the inside?
1: And right back to when I first met Arthur and pitched my vision for, at that stage, MLS Atlanta 2017 that then became Atlanta United. My aim was to be a club that early on people felt like it had been around for a number of years. I'd always had the vision to play in stripes, partly because there was very few clubs who had stripes in Major League Soccer, but also because it's such a iconic look in terms of world football. And when I think back to that first game at Bobby Dodd when the whole stadium had the striped jerseys, the team was out there, I just felt we looked and felt like a club that had been around for a while. In that sense, it does feel like we're established. And in the Atlanta sports landscape, we're now considered one of the top teams. So in the local radio, the local TV, we are covered equally with the Falcons, the Hawks, and the Braves. And I think that doesn't necessarily happen in other markets. And I think you saw it in the All-Star game. I think this year's All-Star game was a paradigm shift in Major League Soccer for the All-Star game because it was the first time it felt like a city had embraced the All-Star game, not just for the match itself, but actually because of the passion that Atlanta has for soccer. So people are flying the flags all around downtown. There was a buzz in the city about the MLS All-Star game coming to the city. I think that's what we've managed to do in Atlanta. We've made it part of the sports landscape.
0: How do you hold on to it? How do you hold on to it and avoid the innovators dilemma? That old business school, Chestnut, outstanding companies can do everything right and still lose market leadership because they keep doing what led to success, but don't continue to innovate.
1: That continuing to innovate is one of the core values we have across all of Arthur's businesses. Firstly, you don't, settle, you don't expect that you're just gonna continue. And whenever we make a decision, ultimately the back of my mind is the three points that Arthur and I talked about the very first time I met him, which was we wanted to have a competitive winning team on the pitch, we wanted to be the number one in terms of fan experience, and we wanted to be in the heart of the community. And I think the reality is every decision we make, as complicated as we might try to make it, and we're analyzing numbers, it really goes back to those three key platforms and are the things we're doing, leading towards that end. So we'll never know how much of our success is due to the success on the pitch. It's impossible to do that beta test where we go back in time and pick a crappy team and say, would there be 52,000 now coming to watch us on an average rather than 53, or would it be 12? Everton kind
0: of questions... Yeah,
1: (laughs) but you know, we'll never know that. We have had a successful team and we've got a commitment to our fans that we're always going to try and put the most competitive team on the pitch. But we also have that commitment to the fans that we'll never take them for granted and they're the lifeblood of our club. And it's easy to say that. There's certain things we do to demonstrate it and there's certain things I'll do to demonstrate it to the staff. So every single game, I will go to our tailgate that we do At the moment, it's in a place called the Gulch. It's a sort of car park that's half a mile from the stadium. But I will walk around that every match, whether we've lost the week before, whether Tatar has announced that he's going to be leaving us, because that's really important. One, so that the fans understand that connection that we've got between the front office and the fans is still there and is going to continue to be there. But also, it's a message for everybody in the organisation that that always has to be front of mind. The success Atlanta United has had is because the fans feel part of the club. And the moment that we go into our ivory tower and hide away or shirk talking about issues, so I'll use the Tata example. Tata, it got announced on Tuesday. We had a fans forum at a pub that was on the books to launch a new radio show. That evening. So I went to that because I felt that it was important to talk to the fans and let them know. Yeah, on the one hand, we're disappointed, but on the other hand, it's a good thing that we are where we are, that we're going to get a great new coaching. But show that connection between the fans and the front office that perhaps in other sports you don't get.
0: For a man who a lot of his job description is to drink beers with fans, you are remarkably trim. And I don't know what your health <laughs> regimen is, but I need to follow it. You, you said at the top of the show, wins hide sins, and your team are very stats obsessed. I do need to know, is there a single stat you monitor that gives you a sense of kind of a hidden drop-off that might not be reflected in results, like a
1: hidden latent progenitor of doom? There's a lot of things that we look at that isn't just the score. The whole analytics in football has gone a long way. I think back to my time with someone like a Harry Redknapp, who was a fantastic manager when I was at Tottenham, but I can remember his view of analytics was you would talk about it and you'd just say, well, we should just get two computers and see whose computer wins, but... <laughs> <laughs> the reality is there are, you know, there are some factors that you can look at that hide what's happening on the pitch. And the danger is if you just focus on results, you don't look at underlying problems that might be happening. And it's the same with players. The real art in terms of player trading is knowing when to move a player on that perhaps you can see a decline is coming. There could be someone that has had a great season, but you're thinking next year, perhaps with your style of play and with the physical data that you've got is on the downward curve. And that art is not waiting too long because obviously once it's obvious to everybody, it's very difficult to get the value that you might get otherwise.
0: Last lesson, Darren. Lesson five. I love this lesson. It's true in life and in football. Have fun. Celebrate the highs when you have them.
1: Ultimately, and this is one of my biggest take homes from now having worked in football for a long time, it's you're always going to have some misery we're in the entertainment industry, so have some bloody fun when you can have some fun. And, <laughs> you know, I've been at West Brom when we lost a playoff final at Wembley that was miserable. I was relegated twice there. In fact, when I went first into West Brom, I joined them in March, and the first game we actually won was in August. So there was a danger that I was going to get thrown out as the Jonah because they literally didn't win a game in the first six months that I was with the club. So I've been there when it's disappointing, when the fans are depressed, when you don't even want to go out of your house because you're just depressed about it. So when you have the fun moments, celebrate. For example, we played against New England. We won the game 7-0. We have our history with New England and Atlanta, the Falcons. The city of Atlanta. Exactly. We did a touchdown symbol and tweeted it out. <laughs> and for me, like that's having fun. And yeah, I got a bit of stick perhaps from the New England fans. But likewise... When we lost the Super Bowl, I had a bet with the president of the New England Revolution and I wore the full wanker New England Revolution kit for a training (laughs) session the next day that we had with our staff team. Because ultimately we're in the entertainment industry and that's the thing I try to stress with our employees as well. You can't forever expect to win every game. So have some fun, do it respectfully, but just enjoy the moment.
0: Football is just at the end of the day,
1: feels like it's everything, but it's just the game. I never want to get into that situation where I or any of my employees think that this is the be-all and end-all. Yes, we love Atlanta United. Yes, we're focused on being successful. But ultimately, it's a sport and a game. In the big scheme of things, it isn't that important.
0: Last season, I don't like to bring this up, Darren, but your team, the needle fell off the record in the MLS playoffs. Columbus, the penalty kick shootout. Tata Martino said this recently. He said all of the achievements, all of the records we've amassed this season, he said there'll be nothing, nothing, if we don't have anything to pick up at the end of the year.
1: Do you agree? I do on one level, because that is why you're playing the game. You know, Ultimately, we talked about how winning results can hide a multitude of sins, but ultimately the game of football is about winning matches and winning trophies. And that's certainly something as a club that we've spoken about right from the very start perhaps gone quicker than we thought in terms of the success we've had. You have. But the reality is we're in a position now to win trophies and that's what we want to do. And I totally understand where Tad has coming from in the sense that, yes, it's nice that we've scored the number of goals we have. It's nice that we've got these points records. But ultimately, what we want to do is have a trophy for our fans to be able to say, look... This is silverware. This is what it is about to play the game of football. Ultimately, it's about what happens on the grass and on the pitch. So, yes, we want to win trophies. The team are focused, Tata's focused, and it would be a lovely way for a send-off for Tata to get that trophy.
0: I'm a man who has many nightmares, many nightmares. I fall a lot in my dreams. Atlanta fans, they are notoriously fickle. You have built up so much kinetic energy, so much momentum. Have you ever, ever had a nightmare about a stadium that is just empty? And you're looking around it as your team are playing, and it's all been frittered away.
1: I get that every game. So <laughs> it sounds like I'm a bit like you. It must be this sort of neurotic Englishman. Every match, I'm surprised when we have the crowd we have because I always have that feeling. I think it's, I love America. I love Atlanta as a city. I feel like I've become an American in my time here, but I still have that British doubt at the back of my mind that, no one's going to show up. I hate hosting parties because my biggest fear is that I host a party and no one shows up. So every home game for me is a personal nightmare that this will be the day that it's almost like, ha-ha, we were joking. We don't care about (laughs) soccer anymore. So that might be part of why I'm focused every
0: day on making sure that they come back. Brad Guzan will always come (laughs) to your party with his famous avocado dip. Last question for you. It's a life hack, if you want, and I need to ask you, Darren Eales, how do you keep your energy levels perpetually at 11 in a serious way how do you avoid burnout it's incredible the personal journey you've been
1: through and the professional journey you've been through over the past three years the most important thing for me is that i'm in a job that is really just a hobby from my perspective i think back to my time when i was a barrister with the wigging and gown and a lawyer you know, frankly miserable didn't really enjoy it my wife was great She was like stop moaning about it and do something about it so i ended up getting the job at west bromwich albion Back into football, Football. this time in the front office, rather than playing. So I thank my lucky stars every day that the job I've got is something that, one, I enjoy, and two, gives so much joy and fun to the people of Atlanta. So if you can't get energised by that, I think there's something wrong with you. But having said that, there's still those days where you think Columbus was a good example. We'd had all of the hype, but we'd lost it. But I think there the way I sort of cope with that was to put myself in the shoes of Columbus. And there's always two sides to every coin. So yes, we were focused about Atlanta United, but this was a team that had had the shock news that possibly the owner was gonna be moving out. Against that backdrop, to have done what they've done for Greg Berthold to have galvanized his squad, to play the way they did was a real credit to them. And so then when you flip the narrative, you think, look, actually, this is a great moment for them to celebrate. And I remember going to see Greg after the game and the Columbus team to say, well done. And that, in a way, made it easier for me to re-energize because that disappointment, whilst it was real, I knew there was that joy in Columbus and I knew that on the other side of the coin, people were happy. And so that brings it back to, I'm just very fortunate to be in the role I'm in. And so I'm just blessed every day to get up and Mm -hmm. be talking about football.
0: Dave, an escape lawyer. I'm an escape lawyer. Some of my favorite people in life, like you, are escape lawyers. So the lesson we can take from your life is follow your passion, do
1: what you love. I think it's that. I think if you become a lawyer after that, everything's fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So everyone should become a lawyer first and then
1: everything just seems rosy after that. Oh, life,
0: America. I love that you love what you do. I love the love that you've built in Atlanta. That's what's at the heart of this Atlanta United story of glory at the end of the day. That is a lot of love. May that love long continue. You give everybody who cares about the future of American football in this country a lot to feel great about. We wish you and everyone at Atlanta United, especially Chase fellavi oh, we wish you Godspeed.
1: Cheers, Rog. Thanks.
0: Oh, What a gent Darren Eales is. I, I feel sorry for him because he should have Save those jewels for the Harvard Business Review and not drop them on Rog at Men in Blazers, for whom they are utterly wasted. But since recording that pod last week, it has been revealed by the gods that Atlanta United in the Eastern Conference semi-finals will play <gasps> NYCFC and the first leg of that home and home tie will be this upcoming Sunday. With the following leg a week later, TV time and whether the game will be broadcast on ESPN or on Fox Sport is still TBD. But Godspeed to all in Atlanta. Courage.